0: Hello and welcome to a special episode of Conversations in Anthropology at Deakin, a podcast about life, the universe and anthropology. I'm Hannah Gould and I'm here with three brilliant women anthropologists, Lee Mayher, Tanya King and Martha McIntyre to present a special roundtable discussion on the issue of sexual assault and harassment in anthropology. Welcome everyone. So um, before we begin, I thought we'd just uh, go round and get everyone to introduce themselves uh, with a brief bio.
1: Hi, I'm Maithli Meher. I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Melbourne in Anthropology. I'm Martha McIntyre
2: and I'm an honorary research fellow at Melbourne University and an anthropologist of the Pacific and gender.
3: Hi, I'm Tanya King. I'm a senior lecturer in anthropology at Deakin University and I work in the relatively male-dominated field of uh, commercial fishing.
0: Um, So my name's Hannah, as stated. I'm a PhD student at the University of Melbourne and I work on material religion and death rights in Japan.
1: Hannah and I are part of Me Too Anthro, an independent collective of anthropologists working to make our shared discipline a safer, more just space. So late last year, when the Me Too movement exploded onto the world stage, it felt like a new moment. There was nothing new about the parts of it, nothing new about famous men being accused like this, nothing new about power being abused like this, or about power protecting itself. Yet, at this moment, something seemed to shift, and those calling for justice seemed to be heard in a broad and significant way. I think we all saw that in lots of industries, cultures of silence were being broken, And there seemed to be, along with that, a renewed social pressure on people in positions of influence to do the right thing, or at least to seem like they were. This whole time, a sharper public language for talking about these issues has been developing, and we're interested today in how this groundswell has affected cultures around sexual assault and harassment in the academy, specifically in anthropology.
0: So I'd like to start us off today um, by asking everyone to share a particular moment uh, in the last year or so, or perhaps earlier in your careers, um, it might be something you read or saw reported or experienced in your work or personal life that connected with you, uh, that drove home the seriousness of the issue of sexual assault and harassment for anthropologists. And just to ask you what that moment taught you.
3: So I've been thinking about this and it's it's difficult to know with, with this with this question whether to... I suppose speak about particular experiences that have happened in an academic context, or those that have happened in in a more personal or or in the kind of online world that we that Me Too has largely kind of um, emerged from. Um, so I, I suppose there's there's a few different moments. Um, the recent kind of revelations about about how is one of them. Um, the discovery of a, of a woman who was murdered in um, Princess Park a couple of days ago across the road from where I I used to live Um, was one of them. The Ansari story really resonated with me as well, um, partially because of the, the difficulty the power dynamics, I suppose, kind of inherent in that case, not just because um, Anzari is a famous person, but because he's a, a man. And the familiarity of, of that kind of experience that the woman who, who wrote about his her date with him, how familiar that, that was.
0: Yeah, I think probably a lot of people reading that story had kind of had that date before, or well, they'd had yeah, heard yeah, from a friend that date. about yeah. something that was not, they just didn't know where the line was, and the difficulty way, of actually yeah. talking about
3: those kind of you know, hard to articulate experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a line where you know I've got friends where, who who had that date, and then it went on to to very kind of deliberate and obvious, you know, rape and sexual assault and and um, and um, kidnapping essentially. Mm-hmm. But you know, a, a lot more people have had that experience that, that only goes up to that line. And mm-hmm. so, why do we only talk about? the line that, you know, that that point over the line which is explicitly criminal as opposed to everything that leads up to it which seems, seems like a, an important kind of, you know, set of foundational experiences that we should all be talking about. Okay,
2: I'll be a bit more specific, my thoughts on this. When I thought about this question I thought about two cases that I know of not at my own university but I am sufficiently friendly with the protagonists Mm -hmm. at another university to be aware that things were very bad in terms of sexual harassment. This was sexual harassment of, uh, I think, at that stage of a postdoctoral appointment and a senior academic who harassed her, who then, when she rejected his advances, lost her job. This can always be dressed up as structural adjustment to financial constraints and whatever, but to everybody who was privy to this, it was a clear case of discrimination based on an initial sexual harassment case. Now, what happened in that strikes me as th- the problem that I think mightily raised in, in initially, that is... There are lots and lots of regulations, policies, people you can go to, etc. But for various reasons, any investigation was stymied.
0: Mm.
2: And it was stymied because of sympathy for this uh, academic, not sympathy for the young woman who. who had lost a job and, you
0: know... May never, Mm. choose never to continue in an academic career even. Well, I think she did. I Mm. think she
2: did continue elsewhere. But I think that, you know, it raises that issue of if in a university setting a complaint is made, then how is it carried through? And there are a whole lot of issues arising from that that really annoy me you know <laughs> that is you know that that unless the person who is harassed has steeled himself or herself or, or whatever uh, to really carry through this it's like any whistleblowing thing they are going to experience extraordinary opposition to at every stage the other thing is, you know, it's not only the structure of power that's involved, you know, which is always appealed to, but it's the problem within an institution when it's an employee, a staff member, who is going to have the union backing them and access to legal advice, etc., free of charge uh, if they're a member, mm-hmm. and that. The university knows that, so that it's a problem for them. They don't want to have this mess. They don't want to have to sack someone or reprimand them or put it on their file if it's going to involve lots of appeals and perhaps even a court case. So, you know, the structures are not only ones of power relations that are always appealed to as if the two protagonists are all matters. There are these other structures that mean that the university is going to protect its reputation, is going to try and play down any kind of uh, ruckus over sexual, sexual harassment or any sort of bullying or whatever.
0: I very much agree with your comment that, you know, there's the structure and the power structure we often talk about But then as anthropologists, it's perhaps odd that we don't also often talk about the particular culture of the university and what its interests are and and, and kind of how relationships between people, personal relationships often can affect how that structure works or doesn't work.
1: Yeah. Can I also ask, when we talk about the university in that case, as much as you are able to, who was sort of the positions or roles that end up executing this kind of resistance and resistance to justice I guess well it varies i
2: mean i can think of <coughs> a case at the university of melbourne a long time ago where it was the professors who mm, right. who uh, were who kind of closed ranks behind a member of staff accused of sexual harassment and on other occasions, it's the legal people Employ, You know, the university right. has a, a legal department. So I think it's unfortunate that the people who often get the flack are the HR people who are far mm. lower yeah. uh, down the, the food, chain. Chain, food yeah. chain. You know, they're just carrying out what they're told to communicate
3: look and one of the one of the problems i think as well is that the language of the of the corporation of the, of the university is you know it's this exact positivist sort of language that requires facts and well where did where did he put his hand and where where was your hand at this point and and all of this you know graphic detail that is so contrary to the experience of, of sexual harassment that, that women undergo. And so I'm, I'm thinking of a, of a particular case at Melbourne as well um, where the the victim, um, I, and I use that term because that has become the way that she sees herself some years later, um, was basically gaslighted into mm-hmm. by staff into believing that nothing really that bad happened mm. that it really wasn't oh you'll be fine you know and, and that she might have been a little bit and crazy
0: as long as long you know as well as all of the questions about you know where did he put his hand and that sort of thing it's also well why did you why agree you to why did you put yourself yeah. in that situation what were you wearing what did you had you given off these signals it suddenly becomes in 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 the uh, you know idea of gathering information it suddenly becomes an interrogation into well you know did you also contribute to it which we know is victim blaming and completely which is what happens in the broader kind of structure of
1: civil of society yeah, so. and i think from like everything you guys are talking about already it's stuff where if you haven't experienced something say you'll hear about these things happening informally but you won't really have any sense, there's no sense of transparency of what these processes are and how they work and how they have worked for people before because those incidents are often accompanied by, what are they called? Non-disclosure sort of statements and things like that.
0: (laughs) If not not official non-disclosure, then a culture of silence where no one's quite sure about how much they can say or what they should say or if they should say. Exactly.
1: And you feel that in your body when you go to sort of say something that's has been unsaid or feels unsaid you feel that sense of like fear and oh god what's going to happen if I cross this line what's going to happen to my career and I you know I often wonder I was talking to a friend about this yesterday about at what point do you no longer worry about your career (laughs) yeah. <laughs> is there that point about doesn't come from retirement I <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but this is
0: i mean this is one of the interesting things and um,
1: then do you have leverage yeah.
0: i mean so Mithley and myself um we've been part of this me too Anthro movement that we kind of you know jumped on the back of the me too movement more broadly to hopefully try and create some movement in, in the discipline worldwide about what we can do to try and move for change on this issue but I think we often find ourselves having intense conversations about are we allowed to say that can we tweet that we want it to be a discipline that we respect and respects us and we're comfortable in and it it's a hard fine line to walk between wanting to be an activist on these areas and also wanting to protect your
1: hireability ability ability But I also see it as um, it's a filter system for mm. the kind of places that you're allowed to go. So if you disclose your activist tendencies, then it's a filter system for being excluded from places that are not likely to appreciate them.
0: Mm. But maybe, Michael, going, right going back to um, the comment, do you want to give a little bit of a background about how you uh, got involved in this?
1: I think it wasn't necessarily one clear moment because I've been trying to think about this as well and I don't think there was a clear moment but there might have been sort of a gathering over the past couple of years of a sense of a problem it went from being something where you hear about things that you don't necessarily have a language for and you say oh that's a bit off or that seems that seems like a shame for that person, I wonder why they weren't more supported, I wonder why that person still has their job, to sort of this point of having a way of talking about what had happened and having a sense of, oh, that's what power looks like, that's what toxic masculinity looks like, that's what um, gaslighting Mm -hmm. looks like. And maybe, maybe maybe the tipping point was this conference a couple of years ago where I ended up, in this corridor on a couch with a bunch of other female scholars who were sort of my age and we were just sharing stories and that was like the transition from noticing things to becoming a whisper network Are uh,
3: either of you, any of you willing to talk about the situation at, at Melbourne and the gag clause that's on
2: staff at the, at the moment? What can one say? It's a breach of... Academic e- integrity. E- and, and it goes against all sorts of other things that they've got in there various statements and visions and missions and whatever. You know, it, it is appalling. It is truly appalling and, and it's happening in a lot of places. But the whole thing of, you know... Yes. And, and I think, you know, gagging on a lot of things, it clearly is, you know, it gives an advantage to the perpetrator if too much information is given ahead of time... That's a problem, if we take it back to sexual harassment um, or bullying or whatever. Uh, You know, the the whole thing of, well, you know, all these stories, I've just been bad-mouthed so much that anything is prejudicial, any investigation is going to be prejudicial against me. So, you know, there's that as a caution always, I think, in the background.
3: There's a difference between, I mean, this, I'm thinking of the Catholic Church here now. Mm. Um, uh, the university is not a
0: good analogy in many ways. <laughs> Long you know, historical you know, institution, yeah. And yeah. rituals and rites, and yep. dominated by
1: Donate. men who, who believe men. they are <laughs> above the money law. <laughs> yeah, perpetrators getting shuffled around. They've got the same robes promoted on. up <laughs> mm-hmm. instead of out.
0: Mm. Yeah,
3: the university is not the police. It's not the law it's not the state and so i can understand you know the police putting a gag on on discussions about about things to protect the you know the the rights and and whatnot of all, all people involved
2: but um that's that's not the role except if it involved something like sexual assault so that The university can say, sorry, this isn't our business, go to the police. Mm. And if you've gone on to Me Too Anthropology and said, this person Mm. did this, this and this, other people respond saying, oh, yes, he did it to Me Too, uh, you
1: have prejudiced the case. What Can I ask what then would be the appropriate or the most effective way for someone to pursue a case (laughs) sorry
0: well perhaps we'll get to that well perhaps we'll get to that but i just want to say i think one of the interesting reasons for why the me too movement kind of arose and because is that you know we talked about going to the police and going to the university but there's so many cases in which it doesn't feel appropriate or you don't know who the authority is to go to or so my own personal story, and I haven't really talked about this previously, is that I was in a situation with someone who taught me anthropology very early in my undergraduate career, and he was a male. Um, he was my one of my instructors at the time, and um, we were in a situation we were in a different country, overseas, and we were outside of the context. He was no longer teaching me. He had, however, written me a reference, and therefore I felt indebted to him and he made very inappropriate advances towards me including trying to get me to stay overnight with him in his hotel room and I didn't really understand what that was at the time and it took me many years to work out how inappropriate that was um mostly through talking with other you know um other people in anthropology but also I don't still don't know in any way what the appropriate means of recourse would be for that because we're not at the same university and we're in a different country and it didn't cross that line, as would be said. And so I think part of the Me Too, where that came in, was the idea of all these kind of cases where there really was no judge and jury around these things. There's no structure that you can necessarily turn to. It's just this, as you said, whisper network, where it's like oh, by the way, if that person ever turns up to a conference presentation that I'm giving, I need you to remove him from the room because I don't feel comfortable with him in the room. Or um, can you make sure that any female PhD student um, who's applying for him to have him as their supervisor, can you make sure she's told? Yeah. Yeah, because otherwise I don't know how to manage that situation.
1: And that's the thing where, like you say, Martha that disclosing things to each other through something like me too anthro will prejudice or will allow a case of prejudice against someone who's being accused um
3: but it also has the potential to protect
1: yeah it also has the potential to protect and it's one of the things where you don't often know whether you need to make a complaint or not unless you've verified it with others for some reason there's still that sense of needing to verify something with others
0: well i think it's that because the culture
1: kind of, is so thick around you but also that it's, it's that right, or... it's that
0: just ingrained gaslighting that happens to women absolutely right yeah. where it's yeah. like
1: was it really that bad
0: yeah did i was that really inappropriate like i remember coming out of that situation being like "Oh, that was a bit weird and then my friend saying like no that was very weird and very not appropriate yeah. um And I still struggle with, you know, to what
2: extent I should do something about it. But if anyone's got any ideas. (laughs) Well, I think, you know, it raises a lot of issues in my mind. I mean, the definitions of sexual harassment in law Mm. require that you feel offended, humiliated, or whatever, you know, so that, and that's the same in universities. Too.
3: I sometimes feel like that in staff meetings. <laughs>
2: <Yes>. <laughs> and, you know, one might say that there's an atmosphere or an ethos of bullying in staff meetings uh, that creates this discomfort or whatever. But in the case of sexual harassment, I think it's very hard there because I think they say a reasonable person might perceive this mm. as being offensive uh intimidating humiliating but if that person appears to be rational and says well actually you know i found her absolutely beautiful and attractive and i had restrained myself until she was out of the orb of any kind of hierarchical relationship and i thought i was simply just making a pass at her
0: Oh no, and that's how he did justify it. Um, Yeah, later, but yeah, exactly. And so, did you confront him? I sent an email later telling him I really thought this was inappropriate, Um, and that's he emailed me back saying, you know, no, I would have done this to anyone, kind of, or like you know, I would have. This is just what I who I am, and you know, this is I I was just totally friendly and not any of those intentions. You've misread the situation and. And even that it took me a long time to realise. No, no, that was that's that's gaslighting. Also, <laughs> it wasn't. Um, I think any reasonable third party, or well, hopefully you, just nodding along as I told the story, would acknowledge that that's inappropriate. So
2: there is now so much emphasis on consent mm. that the person who is making the advance has to be very explicit. So that, you know, and that might come as a terrible shock. (laughs) You might find it (laughs) offensive, whatever. Um, But it does, it it sort of, it complicates what might be in other circumstances something that could just be flicked off,
4: Mm.
2: you know, so that if the person who's, Making the advance. I can think of a couple of cases uh, of male colleagues who made advances, not to students or inappropriate people, but who <laughs> were stunned that they were immediately thought to be sexually harassing just with one advance because they saw harassment as being persistent and. You know, um, not taking no for an answer, that kind of thing. Yeah. So, you know, it's not at all that difficult to see how a lot of the messages that come with Me to, like extreme emphasis on what consent is and the implication that it should be verbal, it raises those those sort of problematic things. I mean, if, if this chap had been kind of pursuing you, following you constantly, <laughs> trying to get you off to his hotel room you know that would be quite abundantly clear that it was a case of harassment if it was just that he said hey let's go back to my hotel room then you're free to say no I don't want to and you know is that harassment I actually don't think it is well, I suppose it's it's that thing
3: of if all these individual cases exist in a in a I suppose a, a constellation of, of power and circumstance and and um, kind of intent mm. where uh, I think of a, we had a talk about sexual harassment a long, 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 long time ago at, at, at college and and there was a, a, a bloke who stood up and said, you know, I asked my wife out. Four times before she agreed to go out with with me. Are you saying that I was harassing her? The you know sexually harassing her the first three times. You know, we're happily married and we have you know a hundred fat babies or whatever. But <laughs> um, I mean, it, but it's all those little nuances that are complicated and time consuming and to, to explain and take patience on behalf of the of, of the of the speaker and the listener. Um, that make this these issues so difficult to kind of, you know, rule in or out of classification as being, yes, sexual harassment or no, just a pass. Um, and that's some of the, the complexity, I think.
1: Yeah. I think two things. So first of all, I think, and I think this is what you're both saying as well, is that raising that complexity for people and getting them to question themselves... And actually reflect on the ways that they've sort of gone about these kinds of engagements is part of what needs to happen, because you know there's you can't describe a situation to someone and have them tell you, oh yes, no, you were fine, you were well before the line of <laughs> harassment. Um, oh no, not you! You were that was you were at the line, yeah, but you didn't judge, cross though? it. <laughs> Good on you. Yeah, so we'll it's see. not it's not something people can be asking others i don't think it's certainly something you can be discussing but it's not something you can ask in a straightforward yes or no kind of way and the other thing is that i think one of the things that happens repeatedly with these stories is that it's easier to summarize something in a way that's quite different to the way it, what, it, was, the experienced. Way it was experienced mm. which is the problem with, with the, yes. of, <laughs> the problem with the process of the problem with the process of complaint the problem with sort of Repeating stories, so mm-hmm.
0: yeah, I mean I obviously left out details for particular reasons, but I think that's one of the interesting complexities of this is is that we get into these difficulties because it's already so hard to share exact information but i um I wanted to take this opportunity to to pivot to question two if I may um on our agenda, uh just because one of the reasons um Mythe and I and um when we were getting this panel together, um, we wanted to have, I suppose, different generations or different stages, people in different stages of their careers, um, being lowly grad students. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and to ask you, um, Martha and, and Tanya being, you know, above us in the academic food chain somewhat, about how, um, how the Me Too movement fits in to your kind of understanding of a broader, historical uh, drive for change in the academy and outside of it? And what are some of the things you may have been surprised of or intrigued by or even maybe rubbed you the wrong way about that kind of movement? I know, Martha, you mentioned de- changing ethics around consent and trigger warnings and that sort of thing. But is there anything reflecting on kind of your experiences that, that might want to mention about these kind of things?
2: During my career, it was the period when ideas of sexual harassment were introduced into universities and into the legal system, etc., and workplace legislation. So, you know, for for me, that was new, and it certainly altered things then. That was in mostly in the 1970s, but particularly in the 1980s when these things kind of were solidified. I have very mixed feelings about um, Me Too for the reasons that I think the whole trajectory of setting up uh, legal constraints, employment regulations, etc., has gone in one direction. And I love Me Too because it just says... (laughs) I'm going to out this person. But, of course, as I've pointed out, saying that means it undermines all those former ways of dealing with sexual harassment. What worries me is because the law is a much stronger and long-lived institution that might easily just make me too into... It'll sideline it because it'll challenge, you know, maybe Harvey Weinstein will just be able to say, Me Too has been so prejudicial that I can't get a fair trial. But on the other hand, it means that public humiliation of that sort is more likely to stop it, to stop that sort of behaviour. You know, if you think your name's going to be all over like... Giovanni de Cole must be thinking about how, at the moment, then perhaps it might constrain some of those behaviours. So even if it's just a blip, and it goes, it's been a good blip, and uh, <laughs> it's
0: been a good blip. <laughs>
2: um, so I think it is a, a new iteration. It's taking it in a very different. Direction from the ways in which it has cumulatively built up over the last 30 years or so.
0: My kind of concern, or maybe it's a lack of faith perhaps, that even people who are publicly named and shamed and become known as bad apples or difficult personalities, if we're being euphemistic, or you know, serial abusers, if we're (laughs) being a little bit less euphemistic, that 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 public persona or reputation will be enough? That they won't get hired and they won't be part of research grants and they won't get publications? Because my, my worry is that the Me Too movement only really has effectiveness if that outrage does something, something. Yeah. yeah.
2: No, I don't think it will. Mm. I mean, I, I've seen too many people who are considered too productive, too important internationally.
0: Bring so, in too many research grants. grants
2: yeah. Uh, you know, they might try and constrain them in some ways, you know, say, oh, well, you can't teach, give them more free time to write their research papers. Um, and, but I think... You have to laugh because otherwise you're I think, that, well, that's certainly... I know that that's happened in two cases. You know, they've been removed from teaching responsibilities you know it's almost enough to make you want to go and sexually harass someone but no i don't think it's enough at the moment mm. because of the whole corporatization the ways in which uh your value to the university is calculated and if you are a mere post-grad or junior member of staff and you don't have any grants you're dispensable in a way that a professor or a person higher up the chain is less dispensable but we're talking all the time about this power imbalance i'd, I'd just like to bring it back to the fact that uh... most sexual harassment is in universities, is between students.
1: Yeah. Yes.
2: And yeah. so that, as anthropologists, we should then be looking at what is it about that environment allows that. What is that culture? I hate that, using that word. So now, so now. <laughs> yes. yeah. As an anthropologist, is <laughs> so misused. Yeah. You
3: know. Just, I, I was wanting wanting to reflect on. Me Too in relation to that kind of trajectory of of feminist movement. And and to me, it it is pretty lovely. It's, you know, (laughs) it reminds me of of sort of mid-90s second wave feminist rage. (laughs) And as somebody who teaches young women, um, that's really exciting to see because in the last few years you know, since I've been teaching, there's been a, a, a large cohort or, or a very disturbing cohort of, of young women who are of that, I'm not a feminist, you know, I don't need feminism right. because that I've found really disheartening. So to see Me Too and this kind of what I see is a looping back to Whisper networks and, and an attempt to support each other and to believe each other and to find new ways of talking about things that are really fundamentally difficult to talk about is really encouraging. I, I do think that there there will be a backlash like we saw with Second Wave Feminism yeah. um, and, and we see it now. I mean, within the university, we, David and I were at a, a seminar not that long ago where um, it was fairly apparent that the Me Too... Um, movement was seen as a
0: threat as a witch hunt wow i'm sorry um, but can we can we all just the words witch hunt used in relation to the me too movement have to be the most
5: terrifyingly
0: <laughs> <laughs> ironic and disturbing inappropriate inappropriate yes. metaphor <laughs> yes. using a term of the perseca- persecution of outspoken
3: women historically but you can't you can't gaslight a facebook post or a, or a blog or an online forum into disappearing into the ether in the way that you could in the 90s you know helen gardner's sort of, sort of story um and that's that's probably the thing that gives me the most hope is that the the format and that me too is happening in um makes it more difficult to ignore i think you know, in the 90s or the 80s, certainly, you know, would we have even heard of An- Aziz Ansari? You know, had the opportunity to read a letter
1: from his
0: his date? We're keeping receipts now. Yeah. Damn straight. <laughs>
1: right <laughs> on. Yeah. We were joking the other night in our Me Too Anthro Twitter about how we're like bringing our pitchforks, <laughs> polishing our pitchforks, and how the pitchforks might look like a revamped sort of theory and practice of anthropology. <laughs> And speaking of that, you know, as people who teach anthropology and supervise and mentor students, I imagine that there's, like like you say, this, this, this moment has allowed you to put that message forward in a different way about feminism. Uh, but what other messages do we want to be communicating to younger generations of scholars and how do we want to be supporting students? There is, in anthropology specifically,
3: um, we have we have the field, this mythical place where you go off and you become an anthropologist, and there is still this huge amount of reverence and and mystique about doing field work. Um, and I know, I'm sure Martha knows. I'm sure we all know um, people, you know, women in particular who've been um, raped or assaulted on field work, which is, as you say, often overseas, where legal recourse is complex at, at the least, uh, where people don't have social supports to either, you know, help prevent or to, or to, you know, come back on, on these kinds of situations. But um, I'm thinking, I've been thinking back on my own sort of fieldwork experience and going off to the field, which wasn't terribly exotic, being South Gippsland, and... Um, <laughs> There were moments of, of exoticism. Um, but, I mean, and, and I've, I've been, a, you know, a f- card-carrying feminist for a long time. Like I got into a physical fight with a Moroccan guy, you know, <laughs> in, in, in Amsterdam who was, was fairly unsavoury. Um, I, I don't think of myself as being somebody who has that much trouble standing up for myself. Um, and saying, "Actually, you're sitting too close to me. Can, I'd feel more comfortable if you just move away a little bit." I, I, I'm fine with that kind of thing, um, but in the field, I found myself kind of permitting and not reacting to or tolerating certain kinds of kind of infringements that um, I wouldn't normal that I would normally have just been like, "Nah." Because I was in the field and I didn't want to, you know, put my key informants offside or upset the locals or, or do anything that might jeopardise my um, my chances of making it work. It felt really do or die, and and I really vividly remember one night at the pub um, where one of the local women kind of intervened and said. Honey, you need to tell him to back off. And it was like, oh, shit! I'm I'm usually the one saying that. Mm. You know, I, I'm not the one who who gets that advice. What is it about this particular context that you know my head headspace or my relationship to anthrop- anthropology as you know, in the academy that's making me more vulnerable in this? context so I think something yeah I think that's something that we can be talking more about I think uh, as um, professionals who are sending particularly young
1: women off to the field I'm so glad you brought that up because similar experiences on field work and in the process of doing that I remember writing to my supervisors and saying I feel like I'm being a bad anthropologist and that a more generous ethnographer wouldn't have trouble with this. And I really don't know what to do because (laughs) I got to the point where I was like finally listening to some sort of instinct enough to write to the supervisors and ask for input. Um, But I think what I really noticed in that point was how – and I I did my fieldwork in Sydney, so it wasn't anywhere else, but – because I was being a field worker, there, there was this strong sense in me that you had to be a different kind of person and that fieldwork transforms you and you let yourself be completely open to everything. And, I mean, I've, there's a really good th- thread on Twitter at the moment where people are really calling that into question and it's taken me a long time to sort of like see the way that that trope of fieldwork and what it is, is extremely centred in a form of anthropology that is quite Eurocentric and is deeply masculinist as well. Um, And I feel like one of the really important things to be accompanying this sort of, you know, this new feminist wave in anthropology, if we can call it that, is an anti-colonial one as well yeah. and sort of questioning how we do field work where we choose to do field work who we choose to field work and how we represent people like I think that needs to be a new conversation like stir it right up and let it sort of simmer again yeah it's,
3: it's all inextricable it's all yeah. Lent,
0: yeah I completely agree with you and I mean in many ways my kind of reckoning with the Me Too movement actually occurred in the middle of my fieldwork. Um, I remember being alone in a city I didn't know in Japan and I like I know the language. I have family, I have in-laws there, I have friends, I've been there for years and years and years. It's not a situation where I felt particularly unprepared. Um, but I remember being alone in a cafe and it was just as all the Harvey Weinstein allegations were coming out and there was that period of about a week where it was just like, name a famous man. Yep, him too. Like <laughs> it was just felt like every day it was like you open the newspaper. I was like, yep, and also that person and also that person. And um, I had just agreed to live in an apartment for free that was being lent to me by an informant in the field who was a, a man who was a president of this company. Um, and I thought, excellent, free accommodation I'm going to save up it's great and I just remember sitting there thinking I've got the key and he's got the key and I actually don't know anything Mm -hmm. about this situation or what I'm in and I always assumed Japan was you know one of the safe countries to do field work in as if there's this kind of division as if as as, yeah as if (laughs) as if like you know it can happen every anywhere obviously and I never I just thought I never thought about being a woman in the field and having to take precautions in that way. And I just felt so naive. And so, you know, that there, it had been assumed that my fieldwork was safe because I had that experience in the culture, I spoke the language, and then I wouldn't have to worry about those kind of things. Because, you know, some people um, in, in our PhD training, they go and do the, you know, fieldwork in dangerous places course, mm-hmm. right. And they teach you all these things about how to, I don't know what they teach you. I haven't done the course. Probably how to suture a wound. I don't, know. <laughs> I don't know if we can speak to it because we. I, I, I mean, it sounds like an amazing course, but I yeah. just thought,
1: why didn't we all do that course? Yes.
0: Why? Yeah. Why or a version
1: of it at yeah, least.
0: Yeah. Why? Why was fieldwork presented t- to at least most people like, oh, that's you'll be fine. Being a single female in the field, I didn't kind of just clock the idea that maybe I needed to be aware of it. And it was kind
2: of shocking when I realised, oh, wait, actually, this is a thing, <laughs> in a way.
1: Yeah.
2: Well, it is a thing, but it's also relatively rare. One of the things that bothers me about Me Too and about courses in how to prepare for uh, fieldwork that stress risk all the time, risk management has permeated the universities they The ethics forms that one fills in are not about ethics at all. they're right. about risk and they're about legal risk to the university above everything else so which you know means that they can say, "Well, you know we we told her you know she had to do this, that, and the other, and it's her fault that she was attacked because we had all these risk management strategies down in her ethics form and she obviously didn't adhere to them. But on the other hand, you know, when I was thinking about preparing students, etc., for risk, I thought, OK, I have now in my career supervised over 50 PhDs. I know of one case of sexual assault and another of rape that occurred to the person when they were doing, after they'd graduated. What is the level of risk compared? Because it seems to me we're clustering risk all the time. There's that. The other thing is reading some of these. Courses, including one that was sent around, or a link that was sent around from an American university. It seemed to me very odd that as feminist anthropologists, throughout that, the person was constructed as vulnerable, not as an intelligent, capable person, but as a vulnerable subject. And that's, of course, you know, that's what we get in the ethics proposals is... All of the people we're going to interview are these incredibly vulnerable people who we might dupe or upset or whatever we might do to them. And I think, in my experience, and I've worked on sexual harassment, I've worked with victims of torture in anthropological research. I didn't see them. They didn't come across as vulnerable. They volunteered. They wanted their story told. They were kind of in their Me Too moment that this was the opportunity. They were not constructing themselves as vulnerable subjects that I was exploiting. And I think feminism, surely, if anything, has tried to overturn that view of femininity as essentially vulnerable, particularly vulnerable to uh, sexual assault, to sexual harassment, to attack, etc. So that... That bothers me. I'll take an example from my own fieldwork. I'm going to work in Pakistan. I have, am working in a remote desert community where women are in Purda. How do I dress? The temperature gets up to about 46 degrees every day. I had to then think, right, I'll consult some of some Pakistani women anthropologists. What would they wear in the field? What is the person who's going to be doing a lot of the translating, interpreting for me, doing wearing in the field? Well, you know, it was quite interesting because they gave me some advice. So I go into a clothing place and then it was very interesting because then I had two male advisors, the chap who'd driven me and the chap who was selling it. And, oh, you couldn't wear cotton... Nobody would wear cotton. Well, I'm not going to wear silk in the desert, sorry. Um, you know, it was all about my status because they spoke English. That was quite interesting. Oh, no, you'll have to wear this synthetic material because it's more expensive than cotton and you won't look like a peasant. If you wear that, you, you know, they'll think you have no money. Oh, well. well. <laughs> so that kind sure. of Negotiation. Negotiation. You know, I just thought, I'm not going to cover my face. I will cover my hair because that's clearly going to be a problem if I don't. You know, but you're an intelligent person. You know, you don't sort of think, oh, you know, I'm a feminist. I'm going to walk into this remote oasis community where women are all in Purda and terrify the wits out of them, you know, because I look so different as it was, it was quite intriguing. They, you know, they would negotiate with me about my appearance.
0: I think that negotiation process and that thinking through and drawing on networks, uh, as you mentioned, of of other anthropologists, women anthropologists who had worked in the region, yeah. is really important. Mm-hmm. And something we kind of struggled with in, in you know, the MeToo movement was about resources for fieldwork training, and by constructing resources, asking people to do training. As you said, are we constructing not only anthropologists, female anthropologists as vulnerable, but getting them to do the work (laughs) of dealing with this big problem? You know what I mean? Like there's this big problem, this patriarchal issue, and it's your job to do all the work to make sure you protect yourself, to manage that risk, and also you're really, really vulnerable. And I, I think, you know, the... The perfect situation is one in which it's a negotiation and you understand yourself as having resources and being able to draw on those networks. Um, But I think the difficulty is that because fieldwork is constructed, still constructed for many, as an adventure where not that you're not vulnerable but there's no potential that, 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 that you could become vulnerable, that it feels like a failure in some ways when... something does go wrong
3: it's a boy's own adventure and very much tied to that colonialist kind of expectation about what field work is i mean you know we're not malinowski we're not Evans pritchard i mean they didn't face these kinds of issues i mean certain malinowski certainly didn't Um, but yeah it's it's a discipline that's like established on a set of principles about safety and risk in, in an environment which are long outdated
0: yeah, and I think a lot of the – when we're looking at the ethics guidelines, is one of the things that we've started to do as well, is a lot of the ethics guidelines, as you said, are constructed around the idea that everyone you talk to could be potentially damaged by you talking to them, <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. which, Anything again, happens. is bizarre. But they then have again, you, power. but also that you have all the power and that you could never be yes. damaged by yeah. talking to them. Um, very much this notion that necessarily whatever situation they step into, the anthropologist is going to be the one with more power. And I've been in many situations in my own field work where I'm the intern yes,
2: yeah. and
0: someone else is the president of the company or the government official. And I'm sure we've all been in those situations. And I certainly do not have the power in that situation.
2: Yeah. And certainly, you know, I mean, I've worked in mining. Mm. You tried dealing with mining companies or the head of landowner corporations mm. Potentially uh. vulnerable. Oh yes, Are they going to be hurt by your questioning? <laughs>
3: but, <laughs> I mean, I, feel I, disempowered I, by your presence. There's yes,
0: very so. important reasons why mm-hmm. our ethics are like that. Historically, anthropology has done some terrible things.
3: But I think Martha's right. I mean, you know, it, it's it's legal legal risk uh, mitigation
2: for, sure. for the university. It drives ethics. It's forms. Nothing. But you know, once again, I think we have to think of these things as. How damaging! How big is this problem? Mm-hmm. Now, how many communities have suffered terribly because of anthropological research? At a kind of meta level, you could say all communities that have studied have suffered from for some reason. But at another level, you know the sort of damage that is being talked about in ethics or in debates about. Uh, of the sort we're now having. We have got into this constant risk-averse mode of operating in research, and I think it stifles research. I have a student at the moment uh, working in Colombia in an area where, uh, ha- where FARC, where you know, the guerrilla warfare where, uh, has been ta- where they grow cocaine, and export it to the United States and you know where so it involves criminality it involves violence it involves military and government violence Um, a very risky situation one might think right but you know she had been in that situation before she knew the situation she knew what she was getting into and she had devised for herself before she left we you know we both got on WhatsApp she would tell me every day what she was doing where she was going who she was with what their name was if they had a mobile phone this was a mobile phone number you know so that she had minimized the risk as much as she possibly could but she was prepared to take that risk of doing work which she thought was really important about the peace project process in colombia would you have
3: set up those same safeguards for a student working in Sydney?
2: No. No, I wouldn't. I you know, I would think that they would be capable of negotiating Sydney. And that there you know, that there would be if they were attacked, you know, there's police stations in Sydney, there's not in Kalka. You know, so uh, that kind of thing. You know, I wouldn't Tell, dare tell people they say, oh good, oh yes, well we'll have all supervisors must communicate every day by WhatsApp with that mm. thing. So maybe it's a
3: perception of risk as, as yes, well, yes, which yes. I think is partially being addressed by the Me Too movement. It, it, and it's not about to me it's not about depicting anthropology students or PhD students in particular as being vulnerable, as as having no dare I say, agency. No capacity to kind of stand up for themselves but it's about having a conversation that acknowledges the kinds of risks that we don't talk about in in just our everyday life um you know much much less this kind of strange liminal space that we call field work um and i think there needs to be a balance there between being realistic and going in with your eyes open and um And kind of caving, I suppose, to the kind of bureaucratized kind of um, version of of ethics that the university would have us um, adhere to Um, and actually kind of fostering these relationships and these conversations, that negotiation that we're talking about earlier, that gives students in particular the language with which to talk about potential risks and supervisors as well. So that you know, a, a young woman in Sydney is vulnerable in a way that. I mean, you are vulnerable in in a way that we that we've been talking about, I suppose, and kind of stepping back or, or not allowing ourselves to be silenced by the, I suppose, objective perception that like, well, she's not in Colombia dealing with drug lords. I, I think that's an. A tempered kind of cautious conversation that it's worth having, mm. I suppose.
2: Okay, yeah.
1: And I think there's also, I mean, one of the things that's so clear across the board within like academia, but other institutions too, is that there's this bureaucratization of processes, and that's where sort of the ethics committee comes from, and it's sort of leaned towards covering the university if anything goes wrong. And that's, what, that's certainly what a lot of these sort of risk-prone training and things can become, this sort of blanket, we must call people this now rather than this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think those things have their place, but I feel like what we'd like to do is operate kind of above or around that and sort of just maintain a focus on these tensions and fluidities of power and vulnerability that happen as a part of all interactions and that are certainly a part of fieldwork. so it's not necessarily that the field working anthropologist who's a female or who's trans or is brown studying in a predominantly white society is necessarily vulnerable as their character but there are situations that emerge in which you are vulnerable and I think that that document that we prepared is just trying to prepare you for what happens if that goes on because not, you know, not all supervisors will be able to tell you what to do in this country, in this context, if this happens. You don't know the contingencies that are going to crop
2: up. I arrived in the main, at the mainland port, where, ready to go out to my field site. So I had to stay in a hotel, I had booked the hotel. There was only one place, it was a guest house. There was only one place in this small town, Alatau, in Papua New Guinea. I arrived there and they said, ''Oh, we don't have your booking. No, you can't stay here.'' I knew nobody in that town. I went up to the uh, administration and said, ''Is there anywhere I can stay?'' ''No, we can't, <laughs> mm-hmm. we can't help you. Sorry. Do you know anybody?'' I'll maybe go and talk to the Catholic priest. I'll go down and talk to the Catholic priest down at the church. He said, do you have somewhere I can stay? <laughs> uh, you know, meanwhile, lugging my backpack, etc., in very hot weather. And he said, no, I'm sorry, we don't have it. We used to have, you know. So I was standing out there in the middle of Alatale, a very small town in those days in 1979, and I look up and I see this white face man. I thought, okay, I'm gonna go and ask him if I can stay at his place. Now, if if I were to say to someone, what would you do if oh well I'd wait until I saw some white face and walk up and say, Excuse me, can I stay at your place tonight? <laughs> I mean, honestly. Yeah. You, you can get desperate. You can um, not have any alternatives to behaving. You, know, you cannot plan for every risk. That's the point. And I think a lot of this sort of the way in which ethics things have blown out, the way in which preparation for fieldwork's blown out, the way in which all these vulnerabilities, and then when it comes down to the nitty-gritty... You're not in one that's been predicted and you have to go on your gut feeling on your intelligence on your self-confidence and sometimes you can't say no you know I'm a this work in Pakistan I get out to the field, the field uh, it's a big project I'm just a little person in it and I discover that in order to go to these villages I have to have two armed guards all the time. This is the law because we are in a region which has roaming bandits. Interesting to get that through the ethics process. (laughs) I've got a wonderful photograph of me with Hussein (laughs) and Ali (laughs) (laughs) with their bandolier of of (laughs) you know Ideal fieldwork circumstances. (laughs) I mean, honestly, what could I have done then? I think
0: maybe a lot of the conversations we're having here is the kind of, if not the failure of those systems to provide the adequate preparation, then just the importance and the support that is provided by informal mentorship and conversations between colleagues uh, and whisper networks and Um, having these kind of conversations with your supervisor and other students so that you have the self-confidence and resources. Um, And on that note, if I may to make a move towards wrapping up the conversation, um, I thought it would be nice as always to try and end on a somewhat hopeful note (laughs) Um, and to go around the table and ask people, what do they hope to see? from what's been happening and stirring in the wider world? Oh, goodness me.
3: Um, look, ongoing conversation, I think. I, I think just continuing to have these, you know, like Marceau was saying, these these fluid, difficult, complex conversations and I suppose if, if anything, um, uh, you know, conversations which often can't be scripted, um, and But continuing to carve out, very deliberately carve out spaces where these conversations can be had, I think is, um, I suppose, a way of ensuring that there is at least the potential for the conversations to be ongoing um, without necessarily scripting what they entail.
2: I don't know. I think I'd like to see some quite dramatic changes in the way that anthropological research is conducted. This might be coming out of a sideways thing, but I think the whole movement towards, I think they usually refer to it as decolonization of the subject, Mm. of the discipline. I would like to see universities allowing and enabling people from the countries in which we as folk here want to work in, so that there are are many more students from those places coming. I would like to see all field work done in collaboration. I would really love to see changes that enabled the discipline to open up so that that subject-object Was was just changed. I think that's this is kind of utopian, yeah. But let's think big. Yes, I want to be utopian. (laughs) So, um, I would also, you know, I would also like to see dramatic changes in the employment of people in universities, so that there was more security so that it, the possibility of reducing the male dominance in higher echelons of the discipline was uh, at least, you know, trimmed back a bit. Um, I mean, sorry that they were able to be reduced, not that the reduction was trimmed back. So I think until we get that change in the structure of universities whereby it's still male-dominated... It's still conservative, it's still allowed to uphold sexist uh, ideas about how things should be done, how research should be measured, what value is placed on certain academic activities. The push from above should be greater equal opportunity. It hasn't worked yet, you know. Then from below that those people who are admitted as students and are a much better mix of culturally diverse people so that the leavening
1: goes up. I'm going to jump in because I'm so excited. This is, I want this utopian future that you want. So I don't even have to say much because you've basically spelled out exactly what I think needs to happen as well. And it's the decolonizing of the academy. It's the decolonizing of the discipline. And I think, like, a very serious reckoning from people who are in positions of influence, power, security with sort of people who are serially spreading this sort of, like, toxic vibe in anthropology. And I'm talking about serial harassers. I'm talking about people who a predatory faculty, I'm talking about people who are abusive and bullying in whatever ramification of ways because there isn't, at the moment there's this idea that there isn't that much space in academia for people, it's hard to get jobs. And the future that I want to see comes from these students and younger people, people of colour, people who are not traditionally what the anthropological discipline is historically made up of. And those are the people I want to see space made for. And it can be done. It just needs to come from like a serious commitment to that at sort of a higher level. I
0: mean, yes, yes, and yes (laughs) to all those things. (laughs) I think if I can add anything at all, it's that I hope to see that the empathetic, compassionate listening skills that we're supposed to be so trained at Um, applying in anthropology, maybe we need to turn them towards ourselves and our colleagues and particularly the people who have less powerful, more precarious positions within the academy so that we can, you know, listen to their stories and their opinions with more empathy and compassion um, and understanding. Yeah, this is a discipline
1: about sensitivity, like at its core.
0: And so perhaps for the uh, last round the table for this comment. We actually have had two almost silent uh, presenters with us here, um, David and Tim, who have been listening to our conversation, but I thought it would be nice for the uh, last contribution about what you might like to see uh, change in the discipline in the next coming years.
5: Us listening, you know, speaking as a fellow, um, speaking as a fellow who's been trying to listen uh, as attentively as possible uh, for most of the time that I've been in the discipline and having learned uh, an enormous amount from my my female peers I would love to see the fellows in anthropology uh, who are not listening listen more closely. I think that's one of the main reasons Tim and I literally passed the mic this time. You know, I, I wish that I could have these conversations with my male colleagues more easily without Instantly, and I mean instantly, having some sort of defensive pushback. Uh, so I'm really grateful that these sorts of spaces are being being opened up, and I, I feel as if maybe I'll be able to keep having those conversations with my male colleagues a bit more easily now.
4: You know, listening to this conversation, especially where we started, was about where we first started thinking quite hard about these issues, and I... I uh, had some undergrad experiences and, and, and friends of mine had undergrad experiences that made me think about this stuff, but really it's been in the past few years being looped into some of those whisper networks and discovering that I'd been oblivious to things going on uh, around me where I was a postgrad student. And I, uh, yeah, I just, uh, I firmly support, I guess, that as a, as a way through. And I've brought that up with other colleagues, uh, especially male colleagues, and there can be a lot of pushback to that. Like, you know, we shouldn't have gossiping um, as a mode of social justice, but uh, I actually, I think I've come down on the side of, well, uh, it's actually a productive way forward to
5: other kinds of changes. And can I just add what a a privilege it is to be one of the fellows who's admitted now and then into the whisper networks, who's trusted enough to be um, present in these conversations without the conversation having to be sort of hushed and cut, cut short. So, and also thank you to all of you for letting me and Tim sit in.
0: So thank you for joining us for another episode of Conversations in Anthropology at Deakin, a podcast about life, the universe and anthropology. This episode featured a conversation between Mythly Meher, Hannah Gould, Tanya King and Martha McIntyre. If you'd like to get in contact with any of us, uh, Mythly, how can you be reached? Probably
1: on Twitter at T-Y-T-H-I-L-Y, but also by email. I'm sure if you Google me, you'll find that. Uh, You can follow me on Twitter at
0: H-R-H-G-O-U-L-D or similarly, Google me up. Google.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Google, Martha. I don't know. I suppose to contact me through the university or I imagine I'm contactable by Google. I have a, <laughs> an account there. A pigeon or <laughs> <laughs> a Pigeon post yeah. smoke. Yeah. Don't talk to me.
0: <laughs> if you'd like to learn more about the Me Too Anthropology movement, uh, please visit me2anthro.org or follow us on Twitter and Instagram at anthro. one word, no spaces. Uh, we will be convening meetings, labs and panels at ASA and AAS conferences in Oxford and Cairns this year. And we'll be working behind the scenes to take other actions. And we'd really love to have you involved. The more voices, the more diverse voices, the better. You can also email us anonymously if you wish at me2anthro at gmail.com.
4: Conversations in Anthropology at Deakin is a podcast produced by David Giles and me, Timothy Neal, with support from the Faculty of Arts and Education at Deakin University. If you'd like to learn more about the podcast, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at TDNeal, and David is at DH BorderGiles. Or you can find us at blogs.deakin.edu.au slash anthropology.